Chapter Twelve of *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Twelve: A Tiger in a Zenana. Another week passed, and by the end of that time Dick was perfectly assured that his father was not at Seringapatam. It was then a question of which of the hill forts to try first. Pertaub had already procured for them an assortment of goods and dresses, suitable for travelling merchants, and the purchase of these things had drawn heavily on their stock of money, although several of the traders, on receiving a hint from Pertaub of the purpose for which the goods were required, had given many articles without charge while for the majority of the goods Dick gave an order on his mother, who had told him that he could draw up to five hundred pounds. On the day before they were about to start, their plans were interrupted by the issue of a proclamation, saying that sports with wild beasts would take place on the following day, and they agreed that as one day would make no difference they would stop to see them, especially as Tippoo himself would be present. Hitherto, although they had several times seen him being carried in his palanquin, they had had no opportunity of observing him closely, as he was always surrounded by his guards. The sports were held in a great square in the fort. A strong network was erected in a semicircle of which the palace formed the base. Behind the network the spectators ranged themselves. Tipu occupied a window in the palace looking down into the square. There were always a number of wild beasts in Seringapatam available for these purposes, as a regular supply of tigers, leopards, and wild elephants was caught and sent in every month. Six of the largest tigers were always kept in cages in the courtyard in front of the palace, and to these were thrown state criminals or officials who had offended the tyrant, and were devoured by them. In his younger days Tipu had been very fond of the chase, but he was now too fat and heavy and seldom ventured on horseback. Dick and Surajah, who had arrived early, had placed themselves at the corner where the network touched the palace. Some thirty yards in front of them a balcony projected. It was enclosed by a thick lattice-work. From behind this the ladies of Tipu's harem viewed the sports. These sports began with a contest of fighting rams. The animals were placed some fifty yards apart. As soon as they saw each other, both showed extreme anger, uttering notes of defiance. Then they began to move toward each other, at first slowly but increasing in speed, until when within a few yards of one another each took a spring, meeting in mid-air forehead to forehead, with a crash that could be heard far away. Both fell back and stood for a moment shaking their heads, as if half stupefied by the blow. Then they backed up two steps and hurled themselves at each other again. After this had been repeated once or twice, they locked forehead to forehead, and each strove to push the other back. For some time the struggle continued on equal terms, then the weaker began to give way and was pushed back step by step, until its strength failed altogether, and it was pushed over onto the ground when the attendants at once interfered and separated them. Some thirty pairs of rams fought, the affair being to Dick extremely monotonous. The natives, however, took great interest in the contests wagering freely on the issues, shouting loudly to the combatants, and raising triumphant cries when one was adjudged the victor. Then elephants were brought in, but the struggle between these was even tamer than between the rams. They pushed each other with their foreheads until one gave way, 
when the other would follow it, beating it with its trunk and occasionally shoving it. When this sport was over, two parties of men entered the arena, amid a shout of satisfaction from the crowd. After prostrating themselves before Tipu, they took up their ground facing each other. Each man had on his right hand four steel claws fixed to the knuckles. Approaching each other cautiously, they threw with their left hands the garlands of flowers they wore round their necks into the faces of their opponents, trying to take advantage of the moment to strike a blow or to obtain a grip. Each blow laid open the flesh as by a tiger's claws. The great object was to gain a grip, no matter where, which would completely disable the opponent and render him incapable of defending himself. When this was done, the combat between that pair came to an end. After the Gettys, as these men were named, had retired, a buffalo was matched against a tiger. The tiger was adverse to the contest, but upon some firecrackers being thrown close behind him, he sprang at the buffalo, who had been watching the tiger warily. As the tiger launched itself into the air, the buffalo lowered its head, received the tiger on its sharp horns, and threw it a distance of ten yards away. No efforts could goad the wounded tiger to continue the fray, so it and the buffalo were taken out, and two others brought in. The second tiger was a much more powerful beast than its predecessor, and was indeed larger than any of those in the cages of the palace. It had been captured four days before, and was full of fight. It walked round the buffalo three or four times, and then, with the speed of lightning, sprang upon it, breaking its neck with a single blow from its powerful forepaw. Six buffaloes in succession were brought in, and were killed, one after the other, by the tiger. Satisfied with what it had done, the tiger paid no attention to the seventh animal, but walked round and round the arena looking for a means to escape. Then, drawing back, it made a short rush and sprang at the net, which was fourteen feet high. Strong as were the poles that supported the net, it nearly gave way under the impact. The tiger hung ten feet above the ground until some of the guards outside ran up, discharging their muskets into the air, when the tiger recommenced its promenade around the foot of the net, roaring and snarling with anger. As it neared the palace it stopped, and uttered a roar of defiance at those of the windows. Then apparently something moving behind the lattice-work caught its eye. It moved toward that, crouching, and then, with a tremendous spring, launched itself against the lattice-work. The balcony was ten feet from the ground, but the tiger's spring took it clear of this. The woodwork gave way like paper, and the tiger burst through. A shout of dismay arose from the multitude, but high above this sounded the screams of the women. "'Quick, Surajah!' Dick cried, and drawing his keen dagger, he cut through the network and dashed through, followed by his companion. "'Stand here!' he cried as they arrived below the balcony. "'Steady! Put your hands against the wall!' Then he sprang onto Surajah's back and thence to his shoulder. Drawing his pistols, he put one between his teeth, grasping the other in his right hand. "'Steady, Surajah! I'm going to stand on your head!' He stepped onto his companion's turban, put his left arm on the balcony, and raised himself by it until his arms were above its level. The tiger was standing with its paw upon a prostrate figure, growling savagely, but evidently confused and somewhat dismayed at the piercing screams from the women, most of whom had thrown themselves down on the cushions of the divan. Dick stretched his right hand forward, took a steady aim, and fired. A sharp snarl showed that the shot had taken effect. He dropped the pistol, snatched the other from his mouth, waited for a moment until he could make out the tiger, fired again, and at once dropped to the ground, just as a great body flashed from the window above him. He and Surajah had both had their matchlocks slung over their shoulders, 
and before the tiger could recover from its spring they leveled and fired. The tiger rolled over, but regained its feet and made toward them. One of the bullets had, however, struck it in the shoulder and disabled the leg. Its movements were therefore comparatively slow, and they had time to leap aside. Surajah discharged his pistol into the tiger's ear, while Dick brought down his keen sword with all his strength upon its neck, and the tiger rolled over dead. A mighty shout rose from the crowd. "'We'd better be off,' Dick said, "'or we shall have all sorts of questions to answer.' They slipped through the hole in the net again, but were so surrounded by people cheering and applauding them that they could not extricate themselves, and a minute later some soldiers ran up, pushed through the crowd to them, and surrounded them. "'The Sultan requires your presence,' they said, and as resistance was out of the question, Dick and Surajah at once accompanied them to the entrance of the palace. They were led through several large halls until they entered the room where Tippoo was standing. He had just left the women's apartment, where he had hurried to ascertain what damage had been done by the tiger. Dick and his companions salaamed to the ground in accordance with the custom of the country. "'You are brave fellows,' the Sultan said graciously, "'and all the braver that you risk death not only from the tiger, but for daring to look upon my women unveiled.' Oh, "'I saw nothing, Your Highness,' Dick said humbly, save the tiger. "'That he was standing over a fallen figure, I noticed. "'As soon as my eye fell on him, I fired at once, and the second time, "'as soon as the smoke cleared, so that I could catch a glimpse of him.' "'I pardon you that,' Tippoo said, "'and in faith you have rendered me a good service. "'For had it not been for your interference, "'he might have worked havoc in my harem, "'and that before a single one of my officers or men had recovered his senses.' and he looked angrily round at the officers standing near him. "'How comes it that you are so quick in thought and execution?' he asked Surajah, as the elder of the two. "'My brother and myself have done much hunting among the hills, Your Highness, and have learned that in fighting a tiger one needs to be quick as well as fearless.' "'Whence come you?' Tippu asked. "'By your tongue you are strangers.' Surajah gave the account that they had agreed upon as to their birthplace, but he was quick-witted enough to see that it would not be safe to say they were in the service of the Rajah of Bor, as inquiries might be made, and he therefore said, "'We came hither to take service either with your royal highness or with one of your rajahs, but have as yet found no opportunity of doing so.' "'It is well,' Tippu said. "'Henceforth you are officers in my service. Apartments shall be assigned to you in the palace. Here is the first token of my satisfaction.' and he took out a heavy purse from his girdle and handed it to Surajah. "'You are free to go now. I will later on consider what duty shall be assigned to you. When you return, report yourselves to Fazli Ali, my chamberlain.' And he indicated a white-bearded official among the group standing beside him. Salaaming deeply again, they left the apartments. Not a word was spoken until they were outside the precincts of the palace. This makes a sudden change in our plans, Dick said. Whether for better or worse, I cannot say yet. I was right in not saying we were in the service of the Rajah of Bor, was I not? I thought that Tippu might offer to take us into his service, and he might have caused a letter to be sent to the Rajah, saying that he had done so. Yes, you were quite right, Surajah. I had thought of that myself, and was on thorns when you were telling your story, and felt not a little relieved when you changed the tale. I think that it has turned out for the best. As officers of the palace, we may be able to obtain some information as to what Christian captives there are, and the prisons where they are confined. Still more, Surajah said, when we get to be known as being his officers, 
we might present ourselves boldly at any of the hill fortresses, as sent there with some orders. You're right, Dick said. I had not thought of that. Indeed, we might even produce orders to inspect the prisoners, in order to render an account to Tippoo of their state and fitness for service, and might even show an order for my father to be handed over to us, if we should find him. This is splendid, and I am sure I cannot be too grateful to that tiger for popping into the harem. He has done more for us in a few minutes than we could have achieved in a year. Well, Surajah, my father is alive, I think, now that we have every chance of rescuing him. As they walked through the streets, many of those who had been present at the sports recognized them as the heroes in the stirring episode there, and, judging they would gain a high place in Tippoo's favor, since they were still alive, came up to them and congratulated them on their bravery and made offers of service. They replied civilly to all who accosted them, but were glad when they turned off to the quiet quarter where Pertaub lived. The Hindu was surprised indeed when they told him what had happened, and that they were already officers in the palace, and might consider themselves as standing high in Tippoo's favor. It is wonderful, he said, when they brought their story to a conclusion. Surely Providence must have favored your pious object. Such good fortune would never have occurred to you had it not been that it was destined you should find your father still alive. But if good fortune befalls you, it's because you deserve it. That you should face a great tiger without hesitation, and slay him, shows how firm your courage is, and the quickness was still more to be admired. No doubt there are many others there who, to gain the favor of the Sultan, would have risked their lives, but you alone of them were quick enough to carry it out. We were nearest to the spot, Pertab. Had we been among the crowd farther back, we could have done nothing. Let us praise where it is due, Surajah said. I had nothing to do with the affair. I saw the tiger bound through the window and heard screams, and stood frozen with horror. I did not even see my lord cut through the net. I knew nothing until he seized me by the arm and pulled me after him, and it was not until he sprang upon my back and then upon my shoulders that I knew what he was going to do. I simply aided in dispatching the tiger when he sprang wounded down into the courtyard. And yet you are a hunter and a soldier, Pertob said. This is how it is that the English have become lords of so wide a territory. They are quick. While we hesitate and spend great time in making up our minds to do anything, they decide and act in a moment. They are always ready, we are always slow. They see the point where a blow has to be struck, they make straight to it, and they strike. The English sahib is very young, and yet to him comes in a moment what is the best thing to be done. He does not stop to think of the danger. While all others stand in consternation, he acts, and slays the tiger before one of them has so much as moved from his place. But indeed, as you say, Tippoo himself told you, your danger was not only from the tiger. The tyrant must indeed have been alarmed for the safety of his harem, when he forgave you what in the eyes of a Mohammedan is the greatest offence you can commit. This will, of course, change all of your plans. For the present, at any rate, it may be that later on we shall still find occasion for our disguises, as possibly we may fall into disfavour, and have to assume them to make our escape. We may, as Tippoo's officers, manage to obtain entrance into one or two of the hill fortresses, but unless absolutely sent by him, that is the utmost we could hope for, for were we missing messengers would be sent all over the country to order our arrest, and in that case we should have to take to some disguise. The first thing now is to procure our dresses. How much is there in that purse, Surajah? It seems pretty heavy. 
Surajah poured the gold out on the table. There are fifty tumans. That will be more than enough to clothe you handsomely, the Hindu said. Much more than enough, I should think, Pertaub. Tippu likes those round him to be well-dressed. It's not only a proof of his generosity, but likes to make a brave show on great occasions. And nothing pleases him more than to be told that neither the Nizam nor any other Indian prince can surpass him in the magnificence of his court. Therefore, the better dressed you are, the more he will be satisfied, for it will seem to him that you appreciate the honor of being officers of the palace, and that you have laid out his present to the best advantage, and have not a mind to hoard any of it. I will take the matter in hand for you. You will need two suits each, one for court ceremonies, and the other for ordinary wear in the palace. I shall be very much obliged to you, Pertaub, for indeed I have no idea what ought to be got. Had we better present ourselves at the palace this evening or tomorrow morning? This evening, certainly. Did he take it into his head to inquire whether you were in the palace, and found that you were not, it might alter his humour toward you altogether. He is changeable in his moods. The favourite of one day may be in disgrace and ordered to execution the next. You will soon feel that it is as if you were in a real tiger's den, and that the animal may at any moment spring upon you. Take with you the clothes you now wear, and those in which you came, so that at any moment, if you see a storm gathering, you can slip on a disguise and leave the palace unobserved. In that case, hasten here, and you can then dress yourselves as merchants. The worst of it is, Pertaub, that our faces will soon become known to so many in the palace, that they will be recognized, whatever our dress. A little paint and some false hair and a somewhat darker stain to your skin would alter you so that those who know you best would pass you without suspicion. I trust that no such misfortune will befall, but I will keep everything in readiness to effect a transformation, should it be required. Now I will go out at once to get the clothes. In two hours he returned, followed by a boy carrying the goods he had purchased, and in a few minutes Dick and his companion were arrayed in court dresses. The turbans were pure white, and the tunic was of dark, rich stuff, thickly woven with gold thread. A short cloak or mantle, secured at the neck by a gold chain, three or four inches in length, hung from the back, but could, if necessary, be drawn round the shoulders. A baldric embroidered with gold crossed the chest, and from this hung a sword with an ivory handle. The waist-sash was of blue and gold in Dick's case, purple and gold in that of Surajah. Silver-mounted pistols and daggers were stuck into the sashes. The dresses were precisely alike, except that they were different in color. The trousers were white. Surajah was greatly delighted with his dress. Dick laughed. "'Of course it comes naturally to you,' he said, "'but I feel as if I were dressed up for a masquerade.' The other suits were similar in style, but the tunics were of richly figured at damask, instead of cloth of gold. Half an hour later they started for the palace, a coolie carrying a box containing their second suits, and the simple dresses they had worn on their arrival. Dick could not help smiling at the manner in which the people in the streets obsequiously made way for them. "'I shall be very glad,' he said, as they traversed the space that divided the town from the fort, when we have got over the next day or two and have settled down a bit. It all seems so uncertain, and I have not the most remote idea of what our duties are likely to be. Hitherto we have always had some definite plan of action, and had only ourselves to depend upon. Now everything seems doubtful and uncertain. However, I suppose we shall soon settle down, and we have the satisfaction of knowing that if things do not turn out well, 
we can go off to our good friend Pertab and get out of the place altogether. On arriving at the palace, they inquired for the chamberlain. He is expecting you, my lord, one of the attendants said, coming forward. I will lead you first to the room that is prepared for you, and then take you to Fazli Ali. The room was a commodious one, and the richness of the covering of the divan and the handsome rugs spread on the floor were satisfactory signs that the chamberlain considered them prime favorites of the sultan. Having seen the box placed in a corner and paid the coolie, they followed the attendant along some spacious corridors and passages, until they entered a room where Fazli Ali was seated on a divan. The attendant let the curtains that covered the door drop behind them as they entered. They salaamed to the chamberlain, who looked at them approvingly, and motioned them to take their seats on the divan beside him. "'I see,' he said kindly, "'that you possess good judgment, as well as courage and quickness. The former qualities have won you a place here, but judgment will be needed to keep it. You have laid out your money well, as the sultan loves to see all in the palace well attired and quiet also, and discreet in behavior. "'Can you give us an idea what our duties will be?' Surajah asked, as Dick had requested him always to be the spokesman, if possible. The Chamberlain shook his head. "'That will be for the Sultan himself to decide. For a time, probably, you will have little to do but to attend at the hours when he gives public audiences. You will doubtless occasionally carry his orders to officers in command of troops, at distant places.' and will form part of his retinue when he goes beyond the palace. When he sees that you are worthy of his favor, prompt in carrying out his orders, and in all respects trustworthy, he will in time assign special duties to you, but this will depend upon yourselves. As one who admires the courage and promptness that you show today, and who wishes you well, I would warn you that it is best when the Sultan has had matters to trouble him, and may blame somewhat unjustly, not to seek to excuse yourselves. It is bad to thwart him when he is roused. You can rely upon me to stand your friend, and, when the storm has blown over, to represent the matter to him in a favorable light. The Sultan desires to be just, and in his calm moments assuredly is so. But when there is a cloud before his eyes, there is no saying upon whom his displeasure may fall. At present, however, there is little chance of your falling into disgrace, for he is greatly impressed with the service you have rendered him, and especially by the promptness with which you carried it out. After you had gone he spoke very strongly about it, and said that he would he were possessed of a hundred officers capable of such a deed. He would in that case have little fear of any of the foes of his kingdom. It is fortunate that you came here this afternoon. It is well nigh certain that he will ask for you presently, and though he could hardly blame you had you required until tomorrow to complete your preparations, your promptitude will gratify him and he will, I am sure, be still more pleased at seeing that you have well so laid out his gift. He gave you no orders on the subject, and had you appeared in the dresses you wore this morning, he would doubtless have instructed me to provide you with more suitable attire. The fact that you have so laid out the money will show that you have an understanding of the honor of being appointed to the palace, and a proper sense of fitness. The Sultan himself dresses plainly, and, save for a priceless gem in his turban, and another in his sword-hilt, there is nothing in his attire to lead a stranger to guess at his rank. But while he does this himself, he expects that all others in the palace should do justice to his generosity. And now you had best return to your room, and remain there until sent for. If he does not think of it himself, I shall, if opportunity occurs, inform him that you have already arrived. 
They had some difficulty in finding their way back to their room, and had indeed to ask directions of attendance they met before they discovered it. A native was squatting at the door. He rose and salaamed deeply as they came up. "'Your slave is appointed to be your attendant, my lords,' he said. "'Your servant's name is Ibrahim.' Good, Surajah said as he passed him and entered the room. Now, Ibrahim, tell us about the ways of the palace, for of these we are altogether ignorant. In the first place, about food, do we provide ourselves, or how is it? All in the palace are fed from the Sultan's kitchen. At each meal every officer has so many dishes according to his rank. These vary from three to twelve. In the early morning I shall bring you bread and fruit and sherbet. At ten o'clock is the first meal, and at seven there is supper. At one o'clock the kitchens are open and I can fetch you a dish of pilau, kebabs, a chicken, or any other refreshment that you may desire. At present I have no orders as to how many dishes your excellencies will receive at the two meals. Uh, we shall not be particular about that, Surajah said. It's evident that we shall fare well at any rate. I am told to inform you, my lords, that the Sultan has ordered two horses to be placed at your service. A Gorawala has been appointed to take charge of them. His name is Surfoji. If you ask for him at the stable, you will be directed to him, and he will show you the horses. In an hour supper will be served, but this evening I shall only be able to bring you three dishes each, such is always the rule until the Sultan's pleasure has been declared. Ibrahim then proceeded to light two lamps, hanging from the ceiling, for it was now getting dusk, and then finding that his masters had no further need of his services, he retired. So far so good, Surajah. We are certainly in clover as far as comfort is concerned, and the only drawback to the situation is Tippoo's uncertain temper. However, we must try our best to satisfy him. We have every reason to stand well with him, and if he sees that we are really anxious to please him, we ought to be able to avoid falling into disgrace, even when he is in one of his worst moods. Their attendant presently brought up the six portions of food, and they enjoyed their meal heartily. Each had an ample portion of pilau of rice and chicken, a plate of stew, which Dick thought was composed of game of some kind, and a confection in which honey was the predominating flavor. With this they drank water, deliciously cooled by being hung up in porous jars. Surajah ate his food with the dexterity of long habit, but Dick had not yet learned to make his bread fulfill the functions of spoon and fork, for at his uncle's table European methods of eating were adopted. Half an hour after they had finished, an officer presented himself at the door, and said that he was ordered to conduct them to the Sultan. Tippoo had supped in the harem, and was now seated on a divan, in a room of no great size, but richly hung with heavy silken curtains, and carpeted with the richest rugs. Two or three of his chief officers were seated beside him. Seven or eight others were standing on either side of the room. A heavy glass chandelier of European manufacture hung from the richly carved ceiling, and the fifty candles in it lighted up the room. The chamberlain met them at the door, and advanced with them toward Tippoo. "'Great Sultan,' he said, "'these are the young men whom it has pleased your highness to appoint officers in the palace.' The two lads salaamed until their turbans touched the ground. "'Truly they are comely youths,' Tippoo said, "'and one would scarcely deem them capable of performing such a feat as that they have accomplished this morning.' "'Well, my slayers of tigers, you have found everything fitly provided?' "'Far more so than our deeds merit, your highness,' Surajah replied. "'We have found everything that heart could desire, and only hope for an opportunity to show ourselves worthy of your favours.' 
"'Oh, you have done that beforehand,' Tippoo said graciously. "'And I am glad to see by your attire that you are conscious that, as my officers, it is fitting that you should make a worthy appearance. It shows that you have been well brought up, and are not ignorant of what is right and proper. At present you will receive orders from Fazli Ali, and will act as assistant chamberlains, until I decide in what way your services can be made most useful. Now follow me, there are others who wish to see you. Rising, Tipu led the way through a door with double hangings, into a room considerably larger than that which they had just left. The chandeliers at the end of the room where they stood were all lighted, while the other end was in comparative darkness. Leaving them standing alone, Tipu walked toward the other end, and clapped his hands. Immediately a number of closely-veiled figures entered, completely filling the end of the room. "'These are the young men,' Tipu said to them. "'It is the one on the right to whom it is chiefly due to the tiger did not commit havoc among you. It was he who climbed up the balcony and fired twice at the beast. You owe your lives to him and his companion, for among all my officers and guards there was not one who was quick-witted enough to move as much as a finger.' There was a faint murmur of surprise among the veiled figures at the youth of their preserver. "'Hold your heads fully up,' Tipu went on, for Dick and his companion, after making a deep salaam, had stood with bent heads and with eyes fixed upon the ground. Then two of the attendants, girls of thirteen or fourteen years old, came forward from behind the others, each bearing a casket. "'These are presented to you with my permission by the ladies whose lives you have saved,' Tipu said and should you at any time have a favour to ask, or even should you fall under my displeasure, you can rely upon their good offices in your behalf. There was another low murmur from the other end of the hall. Then Tipu clapped his hands, and the women moved out as noiselessly as they had entered. "'You can retire now,' Tipu said as he moved toward the door into the other room. "'Be faithful, be discreet, and your fortune is secured.' He pointed to another door, and then rejoined his counsellors. Dick and his companion stood in an attitude of deep respect, until the hanging had fallen behind the sultan, then went out by the door he had pointed to, and made their way back to their own room. "'Truly, Surajah, fortune is favouring us mightily. This morning we walked the streets in fear of being questioned and arrested. This evening we are officers of the palace, favoured by Tipu and under the protection of the harem. I wondered what the ladies have given us. They opened the caskets, which were of considerable size. As they examined the contents, exclamations of surprise broke from them. Each contained some thirty or forty little parcels done up in paper, and on these being opened they were found to contain trinkets and jewels of all kinds. Some were very costly and valuable. All were handsome. It was evident that every one of the ladies who had been in the room when the tiger burst in had contributed a token of her gratitude. Many of the more valuable gems had been evidently taken from their settings, as if the donors did not care that jewels they had worn should be exposed to view. One parcel contained twenty superb pearls, another a magnificent diamond and ten rubies, and so on, down to the more humble gifts, although these were valuable, of those of lower rank. Dick's presents were much more costly than those of his companion, and as soon as this was seen to be the case, Dick proposed that they should put them all together, and divide equally. This, however, Surajah would not hear of. "'The whole thing is due to you,' Surajah said. "'It would never have occurred to me to interfere at all. I had no part in the matter at all. Beyond aiding to kill a wounded tiger, 
and it was no more than I have done many times among our hills, and though thought nothing of. These jewels are vastly more than I deserve for my share in the affair. I do not know much about the value of gems, but they must be worth a large sum, and nothing will induce me to take any of those that you have so well earned. I wonder whether Tippoo knows what they have given us, Dick said, after in vain trying to alter his companion's decision. Oh, I don't suppose he troubles himself about it. No doubt he was asked permission for each to make a present to us. The jewels in the harem must be of enormous value, as for the last fifteen years Tippoo has been gathering spoil from all southern India, having swept the land right up to the gates of Madras. They say that his treasures are fabulous, and no doubt the ladies of his harem have shared largely in the spoils. The question is, what had we best do with these caskets? We know that in the course of our adventures it may very well happen that we shall be closely searched, and it would never do to risk having such valuables found upon us. No, I should say that we had best bury them somewhere. Some of these merchants here may be honest enough for us to leave the jewels in their care, without anxiety. But as they themselves may at any moment be seized and compelled to give up their last penny, these things would be no safer with them than with us. As to Pertaub, I have absolute faith in him, but he himself is liable to be seized at any moment. However, I should say that we had better consult him. If we were to bury them, say, under the floor of his house, we might leave them there for a time. If we saw any chance of this place being some day captured by our people, we could wait till then for their recovery. But the war may not be renewed for years. Possibly Pertaub may be able to arrange to send them down, only entrusting a portion at a time to a messenger, so that if he got into trouble we should only lose what he had upon him. We'll put the caskets into our box and lock it up for the present and take them down to Pertaub to-morrow evening after it gets dark. It will be as well to get them off our minds as soon as possible. For although just at present we are in high favour, there is no saying how long that may last, or when it may be necessary for us to move. End of chapter 12 A Tiger in a Zenana Recorded by Mike Harris